Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is New Books in Geography, one of the channels on the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Today we are speaking with David Bissell, who's written a very interesting new book called Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities. This book has come out recently, uh, publication date 2018, with the MIT Press, and it's appeared in a series um, probably familiar to many uh, geographers called Urban and Industrial Environments. I'm very glad that it's brought David uh, to the NBN today. Uh, David comes to us from Melbourne, Australia. Is that right? Certainly is, yeah. Thanks for having me, Peter. How are you doing over there? (laughs) I'm well. I'm very, very well. Yes, it's a lovely sunny morning here, so um, perfect for discussing uh, commuting time of day. Fantastic. Um, David is Associate Professor in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne, and um, very looking, very much looking forward to discussing the book. Um, we'll get into um, its various chapters. It's a very rich book. It's um, not an incredibly long book, about 100, uh, 150, 160 pages or so, but it's theoretically, it's compa- conceptually, empirically very rich. It's a meditation on uh, commuting as a factor in urban life more broadly, um, and in a sense, how we become different kinds of people, different kinds of urbanites, different kinds of uh, members of society, different kinds of beings in and through um, something so ordinary and repeated as the daily commute. Um, David, perhaps before we get too deep into the into the contents, you could just tell us um, a little bit about your background and how you came to write uh, this specific book rather than some other book. Sure, sure, of course. Um, I think this this book feels really, really grooved into into me and into my into all kinds of histories that I carry with me, I suppose. Um, so as a kid, I really, really was fascinated in transport. I, I came from uh, and I grew up in a very rural part of England, um, and I used to get taken. 
every every holiday uh we used to go and visit my grandparents in 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 Birmingham in in the big city and it was uh it was just such an incredible experience to um to go there and to ex- to experience a uh, a place that was just completely unfamiliar to me and one of the things that i found um just particularly um exciting uh, as a 5 6 7 year old was being taken by my grandparents uh on on the little commuter train that ran from their house into the center of birmingham and we would do this maybe once or twice a week and i was absolutely uh just overawed by the excitement of it all um probably because it was just so different to the place that i grew up in um so even from a really early age i i i found that yeah that these these um these kind of traveling spaces in cities um were just were, were something that that i found profoundly effective and and affecting and 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 i think this carried this really sort of carried forward into um what i then studied at university i studied geography as an undergraduate uh, and it was really towards the end of my undergraduate degree that i um became really fascinated by cultural geographical approaches to thinking about um cities to to thinking about um how uh, you know how people relate to their environments and there was a part of a course uh the course on cultural geography that i that i sat um that was all about traveling environments and suddenly um the penny dropped and there were so many things um that that sort of seemed to line up and um and so from from there i i was absolutely determined that i wanted to continue studying geography and continue thinking about um the role of these kind of absolutely vital but sort of uh fairly ephemeral spaces that hadn't really received the attention that uh, to my mind they deserved uh in uh in the discipline certainly in cultural geography and so um so my phd was uh explored the role of train travel in the uk which sounds really banal but it it was really trying to think about um uh transit from a from a practical perspective so you know strip away the discourses strip away the um the the statistics um you know what are people actually doing uh and uh, and so this then continued uh, after my phd uh, into a, a five year research project of which transit life is the outcome uh so transit life as as a book really um really kind of has those multiple points of origin you know right from my early childhood but but more recently uh from this five year project uh, that I was undertaking uh in Sydney uh in Australia that was trying to um trying to really think differently about this everyday practice about this thing that most of us do on a day in day out basis but has been treated uh by social scientists in in quite to my mind uh quite a um quite a specific way um so just to give you a sense of what i mean by that um the book really tries to challenge it, um understandings of commuting that are just based on statistical knowledges um you know this is this is uh this is the the dominant way that commuting has been understood in the social sciences uh through numbers through through quantitative approaches and even where qualitative approaches um have have brought that into some relief um they've tended to um they've tended to 
align with very much a symbolic interactionist approach. So mm-hmm. focusing on patterns and regularities. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so this book tries to, um, if there was a sort of uh, a foil that this book responds to, it's uh, it's it's these you know, previously dominant approaches that have tried to see, uh, tried to emphasize regularity. That's terrific. Um, I think that encapsulates I mean, qu- quite a bit of the, the book's sort of uh, conceptual ambitions in a remarkably uh, concise concise way. Um, you, you take up uh, no, five, five or six uh, interrelated but, you know, uh, uh, practically discrete um, aspects of the of the commute. And you devote chapters to, um, in some cases, uh, distinct uh uh, senses. There's uh, a chapter, mm-hmm. impassioned voices, moving tones, and murky speech, sort of sensory domain, sensory register, specific to the commute. Um, there's some extended meditations on time, temporality, um, what you describe in the third chapter, squeezed transitions, traveling times, lost and found. And the, uh, the last sort of empirical chapter, which I very much like stranded expectations on the concept of sort of waiting and duration, time as lived, time as embodied. Um, I suspect we'll get into a number of these, um, a number of these components, but it strikes, it strikes me how you've, how you've, um, um, uh, presented some of the, some of the kind of conceptual motivators here. You say that the, the, the commute is a, is, is a vital thing. It's an ephemeral part of the day, an ephemeral set of sort of spaces and collectivities that coalesce. And then, and then perhaps fragment as the day goes along. Um, I'm interested in this concept of vitality and all that that might, um, implicate. I mean, in a sense, it's right there in the title of the book, Transit Life. You, it seems that you are seeking to characterize an entirely, um, an, an entire mode of life, an entire mode of being in space, being with others. Um, and you use a very rich vocabulary throughout the book, um, uh, a language of um, uh, blockage and flow, this very sort of uh, uh, visceral language of movement, uh, this language of the sort of fizzing, bubbling, um, ambient intensities of uh, of the commute. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that, um, transit mm. as a mode of of life, uh, the, the, mm. the commute as something more than simply a mundane practicality to which we allot 20, 30, 40 minutes and then, and then disavow, um, as the day moves along. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think one of my frustrations with previous ways or previous ways in academics have conceptualized and written about commuting is it's ten, they've tended to, I suppose, kind of denigrate and reduce the commute, uh, and the activity of commuting to something boring, something mundane, something very, very humdrum, um, uh, something that happens the same way day in, day out. And, and I think because of this, um, many of those accounts of commuting have tend to, tended to, uh, portray it as, as quite a dystopian, uh, realm, something that we would rather probably do without and something that we should, um, you know, iron out through, uh, through all kinds of infrastructural fixes. And so I suppose my, my, my sort of starting point for thinking about, um, how to produce a different account of commuting was to, to try and consider what, what is missing, what gets left out of those dominant, um, conceptualizations. And for me, um, the key thing that, that was missing in many of those conceptualizations was, uh, was this sense of vitality, as, as, as you put it, as you say. This sense that um, this is a sphere of life, this is a zone where 
where all kinds of unpredictable, indeterminate interacting forces are at play. And what this means is that uh, if we take that seriously, that, that kind of wager, is that commuting potentially then becomes a much more volatile, a much more unpredictable, a much more indeterminate zone where strange things happen, where mm-hmm. encounters and events uh, actually take place that, that make a difference. And so all of this taken together produces quite a different account of the bodies um, that are making their way to and from work every day. So uh, I'm inspired by theories, conceptualizations in geography and cultural geography uh, that have really tried to rethink what a body is. And that, I know that sounds sort of quite lofty, but it's actually quite um, it's quite a simple claim. It's it's um, for, my, for me, one of the signal um, contributions of uh, of what's now within the discipline um, become known as non-representational theory mm-hmm. is this idea that bodies uh, are uh, have previously really been understood in terms of their rather more determinate identities and and this is you know this leads to an account of bodies that becomes uh, as Nigel Thrift wrote many years ago quite a, a, a kind of deadened um, you know a deadened phenomena whereas if we understand bodies in terms of their um, indeterminate uh, capacities we have we have a we, we shift subtly to a really quite different um, understanding of what bodies are. So rather than, um, you know, if we might think of the people that commute, um, think of ourselves or the people that commute uh, with us in our train carriages, in our tram carriages or our cycle paths, um, even though we might see the same people day in, day out, um, if we think about those people from the point of view of their indeterminate capacities, well, differences will be taking place you know we might focus on on those uh, on those identities but actually if we were to if we were to really um take seriously this idea that 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 bodies can be thought of in a more indeterminate way then we need different ways of thinking about and writing about those bodies and that's what transit life tries to do that's terrific. Yeah, the, the, the notes of non-representational theory uh, sh- show through at, at any number of points in the book. It strikes me that, that, you know, rather than sort of establishing a set of coordinates, sort of a, a, a stable theoretical framework in the first chapter, and then just sort of uh, deducing a set of empirical encounters from that, um, theory and empirics are really braided together very closely here um, in, in each one of the chapters, and you're marshalling a wide range of thinkers, concepts, uh, texts um, in, um, you know, in, in, in some ways uh, an eclectic way, but I think pleasingly, pleasingly so. Um, and I suppose that that cuts to the heart of the um, sort of the, uh, the, the it's, it's gr- non-representational theories fundamental grounding in practice, uh, the, these aren't mm. these are not two separate uh, domains as such. Mm, mm, absolutely, and I think um, I think one of my challenges with this book was how to how to be faithful to um, to those non-representational um, uh, ways of thinking about phenomena. So prioritizing forces, thinking about transformation, thinking about the role of events and encounters as productive of difference. But to try and write an account of commuting that um, 
at the same time excites, innovates, intrigues a reader. Um, I think this is quite a difficult tightrope to walk. I think many people um, have have uh, have found uh, have, have found it have found some of non-representational theories, uh, expositions within the discipline, um, potentially alienating, potentially uh, off-putting um, in their in their theoretical um, uh, complexity uh, and the, the ways that they're written and. Um, you know, there's a, there's good reason why those accounts have the complexity that they do. You know, these are really important interventions that have changed the discipline in really vital ways. Um, but my challenge in this book was to to think about ways of taking those theories and developing them alongside um, the empirics, uh, the empirical work that I was undertaking uh, in Sydney, which um, I think. Uh, which, 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 for me, um, is something that I think non-representational theory um, and theories um, could experiment um, more with. You know, that the question of, of the empirical and how that gets, um, how that, you know, that that is front and centre of, of how we form accounts of the world. And so. I suppose I'm inspired by the book is inspired by um, a number of different currents, uh, as has already been intimated, I guess. So I'm in, uh, I'm, I am inspired by non-representational theories. Um, I'm inspired by mobilities thinking. Uh, so where questions of meaning and movement uh, come to center stage to think about uh, social life. Um, I, but I suppose the kind of wider uh, transdisciplinary um Sort of halo around uh, around those bodies of work, uh, new materialism, affect theory, mm-hmm. um, all kind of point towards, I suppose, more speculative ways of uh, of doing analysis on of and of, and of theorizing the phenomena that that are uh, are under our radar. So, um, so the way that I try and do analysis in this book is. Uh, is is more suggestive and speculative than making definitive claims, uh, and the way that I enrol thinkers and their ideas throughout the book uh, is is almost to to try and form a dialogue between uh, a narration of accounts, events, experiences that I've had uh, in the fields with my with commuters that I've talked to uh, on on journeys that I've I've undertaken, and thread these with the thoughts of other people. So there's not necessarily a tight correspondence uh, of those ideas with uh, the events that I'm narrating, but rather they they kind of resonate so that when you read them, you're really left um, to make up your own mind in terms of uh, what what is actually kind of going on here. So uh, so yeah, it's a it's an in, as as Lauren Ballant says, it's an intrepid tightrope to walk. You know, you want to control an object enough to say something about it, but you want to uh, be open enough to allow, uh, in her words, new depths of association to emerge. And those uh, new depths of association shouldn't be singular, or shouldn't be. Um, uh, sorry, they, they should. You know, they're going to be different for whoever reads this uh, and the histories and ideas that they bring to it as well. I think that's very well said. Um, in that spirit, I think it makes some sense to um, to think a little bit about Sydney specifically as as a context for this book. I mean, you've you've 
uh, very clearly signaled that um, just some of the underlying dispositions that have made you the kind of person and geographer disposed to write this book um, are really elapsing in uh, Birmingham uh, at another at another point in your life. Birmingham and Sydney are very different different cities in in any number of ways. Um, and um, what is it about? Um, well, this is sort of a, a two-pronged question, I suppose. What is it about the case of Sydney that has sort of left its imprint on this book um, uh, uh, specifically? And um, and uh, perhaps you could then sort of delve into, excavate in a sense, one um, empirical encounter, um, one uh, significant or memorable transit experience that you have uh, enfolded into this book. Mm, mm. Sure. Um, so, so Sydney very much is front and center uh, of the book, and and when when I made this decision, I, I suppose there was, um, you know, I was well to to give you a sense of where I started out from. When the project began in 2012, um, there were a series of reports um, released in Australia that were taking statistics uh, on. Uh, on commuter stress, and these statistics um, suggested that Sydney was um, was the city in Australia that where people were experiencing the most commuter stress, and mm. so this provided me with a with a, a kind of um, a wager really to to think about okay, well something something is going on in Sydney that. Uh, that is interesting and warrants uh, attention. So, so it was fortuitous that these reports were were released, uh, and then I I, I made my decision. Um, I think, like any researcher, I was um, I, I I grappled with the challenge of deciding whether to focus on a single city or whether to um, develop a more um, multi-sited uh, approach. And and I think that there are, there are Obviously, there are um, you know there are good reasons for for taking uh, either or of those approaches. But I, I what I think I was enamoured by the single city approach is is it really enabled me to delve into the specificity of Sydney. It really allowed me to delve into um, uh, and and try and kind of excavate a multi-dimensional sense of a single city so that when you read the six chapters uh you're essentially um kind of experiencing uh and going on a journey and various journeys through this city and you're building up a a sense of this uh of this at first this single place that then sort of reflects 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 sorry into this sort of really strange and very multiple uh city so, and I think you can. I think there's a. You can do that, um, hopefully, effectively, and, and really quite in, in quite a fun way with a with a single city uh, approach. Having said that, um, uh, my hope is that the the way that I've um, the, the the challenges that pulse through this book, um, the, the 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 kind of troubled traffic that this book follows. Um, of course, does have wider applicability. So whether you're in um, Mexico City or London or uh, Kansas City, you know there are there are you know all of the insights in this book um, will resonate and will resonate across that difference as well. And I think that's um, uh, I think that's again one of the ambitions that I have for, for focusing uh, 
uh, on this Sydney case. So, so yes, so Sydney was Sydney was certainly the starting point uh, of this book. Um, what I did is I uh, I interviewed uh, 53 commuters um, who responded to uh, a series of uh, newspaper adverts, uh, which sounds quite quaint now, uh, mm. back in 2013, mm. um, and uh, and. The interviews are really form uh, form the the kind of the backbone of the empirical work uh, in this uh, in this book. And I suppose just uh, before I maybe delve into um, one of the kind of moments that, that I want to consider. Um, again, this is the first book I've written, and I was really confronted by this um, challenge of wow, in eighty thousand words or so, you really have to. Um, be much, much more attentive to texture or difference uh, and to, um, you know, to sustaining excitement over eight, 80,000 words that, that, that forces you to think about using and, uh, and, and, and developing interview material in different ways. And so, uh, so throughout the book, um, I, I draw on these 53 interviews uh, in, really, in really quite different ways. Um, so sometimes there will be um, a sort of slice of text, um, a little passage that comes through, um, sort of just wisps in like a um, you know, strand of smoke. But at other times, there is one interview encounter that is absolutely front and center. And I take, um, rather than taking the interview and the text that is that comes out of that interview as... Um, you know, just kind of revealing a particular social world. I try and think about how to accommodate the interactional textures of the interview itself, you know, mm-hmm. how I'm being affected uh, by uh, by that encounter, because for me, that's a fundamental um, aspect of doing research and of qualitative analysis that uh, is such a huge aspect, but often gets written out and overlooked uh, in the presentation of analysis. So, uh, for example, just turning to um, uh, to one of the one of the empirical um, parts of the book that I I suppose really kind of stuck with me maybe more than others in, mm-hmm. in chapter two uh, on fizzing intensities. Um, the the final part of uh, of of the chapter, the final third of the chapter, um, is is a reflection and a narration of one interview encounter with a woman. Uh, Claire, who lives in the uh, the inner west of Sydney, and whose interview was a really, really profoundly moving experience, uh, as she narrated to me the experience of um, of her bus journey every morning uh, to and from work, and you know her journey, you know, in, in terms of traditional quantitative ways of understanding the commute wasn't particularly long. It was a, it was a fairly short journey, but it was the things that she told me about that journey uh, that, that really, that kind of really stayed with me. So um, she describes, for example, um, what she calls the Island of Doom. This, she has to change buses on her journey to work. And there's this, um, uh, this transit interchange in the middle of Sydney that she has to use, um, during her commute, and she described to me how um, oftentimes when she's waiting there, um, she will be, for example, harangued by, um, uh, by, by people who are idling uh, in, this, in this space. And, and 
she finds it, you know, an, as you can imagine, an incredibly confronting experience. And, and the way that she narrated this to me was, um, uh, was, was, you know, just gave me a sense of just how, um, how much this, this experience has really changed her, just how much it's actually grooved into her life. It's, it was a clearly a profoundly depleting experience that she goes through, uh, day in, day out. And, um, so she, you know, we spent, uh, uh, a fair amount of the interview talking about this, but then, it was interesting. Um, suddenly, there was a moment in the interview that she says, well, actually, no, what I really want to talk to you about in this interview, what I actually responded to your ad about. And so, yeah, again, it's, you know, I was on the edge of my seat. I thought, well, where is this going? How, you know, we've just spent a long time talking about this awful island of doom experience. And then, you know, it turns out that there was uh, another um, experience uh, that she had um where she completely, where she completely lost it, uh, when she was, I mean, she painted the scene really beautifully. She was in the middle of Sydney. She was, uh, wanting to get the, you know, her favorite bus back home, the L, uh, I think it was a, I can't remember, it was L50, uh, or something, the kind of the limited stop bus. And she said, you know, it was raining. Um, she's, she'd, a couple of buses had already passed. Um, and she was running to the stop. She put her hand out and the bus driver pulled out and, um, you know, only by a few, few inches. And she said she absolutely lost it. You know, this, um, middle class, fairly sort of reserved, uh, woman. And, um, and I think for me, what, what was really interesting uh, about this is that it, it really does encapsulate um, one of the key sentiments uh, of the book that uh, within commuting, um, you know, this, this sort of this repetition of small things can lead to really quite profound tipping points. And for her, um, the way that she was narrating this to me, you know, this was a real tipping point for her. You know, this, after, um, you know, obviously that, that kind of in situ you know, experiencing a few, you know, a few buses kind of uh, go past her while she was running to the stop. But also, you know, these years of being harangued in space of transit, all of these things had led to this kind of moment for her where, where she, as she says, she, she just completely uh, lost it. And um, uh, the story itself has actually quite a lovely um, resolution. Um, she she describes how she... Um, you know, she, she, she suddenly felt really sheepish. She sort of got a grasp of herself and she, she, um, you know, she turned to this canopy to escape from the, the rain and she suddenly realized that there were, uh, tens of people just watching her, uh, and, you know, it just felt this kind of shame etched on her, her body. But a lady came up to her and said, you know, look, I, I, you know, I know how you feel. And, you know, so again, it was it was just it, the way that she narrated this showed just how um, how those kind of intensities, those experiential intensities uh, change from moment to moment. So for her, from this kind of really intense moment of totally losing it, you know, that, that's never happened to her before to sharing this quite sort of intimate, beautiful moment of uh, where someone was empathizing with her, where someone was saving her from her shame. Um, and so for me, uh, rather than writing about uh, one of those incidents in isolation, which would have been very easy to do and possibly more conventional uh, from the point of view of, of social scientific analysis, it really only made sense to think about uh, her commuting experience 
holistically, you know, the way that all of these experiences that she was talking to me about in the interview and the ways that she was talking about them, they needed to, they needed to be um, understood and thought about side by side. And for me, the, uh, a really, uh, a really effective way to do that was to actually write, as I say, a third of this chapter about the actual interview itself and, and how I was kind of sensing these differences. It, it very much comes through. I mean, the, the, the embodied qualities of the, um, of the, of the interview as event. Um, one, one, one point of, uh, cl- clarification. These, these interviews were done, um, while in transit or not necessarily? Uh, mostly not, actually. Um, so I know that lots of, um, lots of, People within mobility uh, studies and in geography have experimented with mobile methods, with mm-hmm. go-alongs, so walking or traveling with people and talking to them. Uh, I, from experience, um, I I felt that I would actually, I was actually much more comfortable talking with people in a space that they would prefer to talk to me in. So for some people, it was at the in their homes. For other people, it was in cafes uh, or in public spaces, very often near transit spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, so they were they were because I think that these are these are sites that maybe people um, feel a bit freer to be able to talk because obviously when you're in transit and you're, you're, you know, you're having a conversation uh, as as part of the book uh, <laughs> kind of explores. Um, you're very much bound by the 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 kind of the affectivity of that space, you know. So so uh, you know, oftentimes I probably couldn't have had such animated and interesting conversations with people whilst actually travelling by train or or uh, within. Uh, within trams, um, you know, a lot of commuting, um, you know, certainly public spaces are actually really, really quiet spaces that I found in my participant observation. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off indeed yeah and the questions of privacy the questions of ex- mm. exposure uh, in in a sonic sense in a bodily sense exposure to the glances and gazes of of, of others are all too real indeed. Um, so okay yeah i just i just wanted to uh clarify that point i mean you, you you nevertheless transmit quite a bit of detail affective uh bodily sensory detail from your own accumulated commutes um in addition to the testimony um you know put forward put forward in the interviews um and, and the chapter that you've uh, directed us to the second chapter on fizzing intensities there, there are a, a number of uh very very sort of explosive moments at which uh these codes these these uh these interactions in a sense break down or 
combust. Um, there's mm. some language we won't repeat um, in, in, in that in that encounter and others. But um, it makes it makes a lot of sense that you've uh, taken us there to, to guide us into these uh, sort of methodological questions uh, more broadly. Um, you um, you uh, go, going off of that, I suppose you uh, at one point in the book, I mean, uh, th- throughout the book, there's a sense that, you know, this is a uh, it's a descriptive study. It is an interview study. There are various conceptual concerns. There are also some broadly conceived political and ethical um, uh, 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 levers to your analysis as well. And at one point, um, you describe um, politics, theoretically speaking, as a question of relationships between enablement and constraint. And um, this this struck me. It, it sort of dovetails in, I think, inter- interesting ways with your guiding um, your guiding language of, of blockage and flow um, with respect mm. to with respect to mobilities more broadly. But enablement and constraint, um, questions of power, questions of uh, d- differential uh, 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 embodiment of these spaces of transit, are I, I really I think are front and center. And I wonder if you could speak to um, empirically, um, mm. a case of enablement and a case of constraint, and then more broadly, how you think about that relationship through this medium, uh, through this mm. vector of, of transit. Sure, I think um, so. So again, I, I suppose this this to to think about a starting point uh, of this study. I think one of the things that I found um, <laughs> constraining, to use the word that we're that's in play here, mm-hmm. is that. Um, that politics, uh, from a from a more kind of traditional transport planning perspective uh, and transport studies perspective, has often been understood in terms of, I suppose, what we might term a, a kind of macro politics. Um, so theories of, uh, I suppose, broadly um, and, and generously political economy um, approaches uh, have often conceived of um, powers in space of transit as um, as kind of emanating from uh, from government, from state government, from councils, uh, from transit planners, from engineers. Uh, and I think one of my um, one of my and, and, I, and I, you know, I certainly I'm not denying that that uh, that there are uh, that there are important that they are important sites of power. But they are not—they uh, are not the only sites of power. So uh, I suppose, and again, this aligns with the broad tenets of new materialist theory, of non-representational theory, is—is—is uh, um, is, is that we actually—it's—it's it's, I think important to uh, to start off, or, or at least um, be more sensitive to a much more diffuse uh, sense of power uh, in this space. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, you know, some people might might accuse um, accuse me in saying that of of of, um, uh, of having, to, uh, you know, of, of kind of romanticism actually, uh, of of uh, you know, of maybe uh, you know, of kind of giving too much, for example, agency to um, to parts of this uh, these commuting scenes that maybe um, you know that that, that is. That is sort of not accurate, but I, but I I'm really influenced by um, by a number of key thinkers that I've already intimated here. So um, Deleuze uh, and his 
understanding of politics, I think, is, is probably front and center, um, or implicit at least, uh, in the way that I'm thinking about politics here. Uh, and, and I suppose, um, with that, um, uh, Foucault's understanding of, of micropolitics as this, this, um, uh, as, as, as an injunction to think about the various kind of capillaries sort of, of power that are dispersed and diffuse in any situation. Um, so, so for me, um, this idea of micropolitics, uh, provides us with a way of thinking about how events and encounters experienced in the city in any place are, are kind of make a difference in any situation. There is an imminent politics uh, where the forces that are taking place in, you know, in that moment are, are kind of driving what is happening as opposed to an external force or pressure. Um, so, for example, the um, in the chapter that we've been, I suppose, a bit preoccupied with the second chapter on, on fizzing intensities, the. Uh, the, the, the kind of dramas that you alluded to, um, a moment ago where a, where something, uh, uh, a kind of, uh, a really kind of confrontational event emerges in this train carriage where these, um, you know, this group of teenage, um, boys, um, on this commute at the end of the day, um, start basically harassing passengers. And it's a really, um, kind of not nice, uh, thing as, as, you know, it's possibly something that, you know, many people have experienced. Um, and, and I, and I suppose where, where my, where this idea of micropolitics, um, comes in really useful is that rather than deciding where power is situated from the outset, uh, of where, you know, uh, of, 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 you know, of what the important forces are, um, my my kind of ethnographic account of this evolving event that happened on this return train journey um, over the course of probably half an hour or so of what happened, the people that responded, uh, of the atmosphere that I sensed in that carriage and sensed other people sensing, um, describes for me this this kind of this this imminent politics, uh, this imminent kind of micropolitics at play. You know, there are times that. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the forces moving this carriage are very much, um, the, the, the force of these, um, these teenage lads' expressions, you know, the, the, the force of an expletive, the force of someone staring at you, mocking you, um, and, you know, agitating you, um, but then, you know, the force of these, you know, the, these expressions, these expletives, uh, is then, you know, intervened on and muddied by a whole series of other things that are taking place in that moment. Um, you know, there are times that the that the carriage doors open, for example, you know, pulling into a station, and suddenly, in really subtle but powerful ways, the the whole kind of atmosphere sort of shifts. You know, suddenly there's an escape route, possibly. You know, if you want to get off, you could, and then the doors close, and suddenly the the kind of the the intensity of force uh, of the situation feels heightened again so again this feels like really really kind of everyday stuff you know these are things that we've probably all experienced maybe in in kind of different ways or forms but uh is for me an ideal way of uh of um emphasizing just uh how important a micro political 
uh, approach actually is that, that kind of treats seriously this idea of indeterminate capacities changing, uh, uh, you know, according to what's going on uh, in a situation. Um, now, of course, as I also say in that chapter, um, this doesn't mean that macro political action, the sort of uh, political action that we might uh, associate with, you know, a state actor or, you know, a transport company, you know, that's not unimportant. And as uh, I kind of draw on others, people like Brian Masumi, who said that, who says that, no, of course, those sorts of, um, the, you know, those sorts of activity, macro political activity is, is vital also. Um, so, you know, the fact that this was taking place in a quiet carriage, for example, where certain codes of conduct have been prescribed, again, changes um, it changes people's dispositions. It changes people's thresholds and what they can tolerate, uh, again, in subtle but powerful ways. So for me, this, this, this question of enablement and constraint uh, through a kind of micro-political lens really, um, uh, really kind of um, helps me to think about um, the kind of diversity uh, of forms that, that kind of power takes uh, in these zones and, and I think makes makes the kind of question of politics much more open and exciting because of it. That makes sense. Yeah, the uh, I think the the uh, Deleuzian uh, inheritance is is clear uh, various points in the text and a, ver- a version of Foucault um, to, to invoke, I mean, sort of a stock and trade Deleuzian uh Opposition, the question of difference and repetition seems to be, in fact, at, at the very heart of your study. Uh, the, the commute as, as an experience is a commute only insofar as it is a habitual action, right? A, 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 a mm. Repeated, a type of action, an interval in every day or every weekday in any case. But your underlying uh, wager here, the gambit, is that out of precisely, precisely that repetition, only through that repetition can difference, novelty, the unexpected, the indeterminate emerge. Um, mm. And again, whether that sort of politically and ethically, whether that is a cause for celebration or uh, the, the height of insecurity, the height of uh, mm. precarity, that that mm. is a second question that one might uh, that one might take up. Um, so I, I, I like the way I like the way it comes uh, comes together in that way. There's this sense that through the seemingly just sort of blunt brute force of repetition, we are in fact becoming otherwise. We are building skills. We are learning new capacities, um, whether any one of us is intending that or not. Mm. Um, uh, please go on. No, no, uh, absolutely. And I think, um, and, and I think, you know, I, I really like the point that you make there and the emph- you, that you emphasize about uh, or implying that this book, you know, it doesn't try and it's, it's, it's not a, whilst it doesn't denigrate the commute, um, whilst it doesn't try, it doesn't pander to those more dystopic imaginaries that this is a zone of life, um, where, you know, that, that is, you know, depleting, uh, in that kind of universalized way. Neither does it, uh, neither does it romanticize the commute. Um, uh, because I think again, you know, to, to, you know, to draw those broad brush conclusions or to draw those more broad brush uh, uh, evaluations would be to overdetermine um, exactly kind of what is going on for these, for um, you know, for the for the participants that I that I talk to. And so, you know, thinking about a language of repetition and difference, as you say, is a really effective way of thinking about how, um, if, in terms of different 
kind of assemblages of bodies and places, um, repetition, uh, the repetition of certain things um, changes them. Uh, the repetition of things leads to tipping points. And this might be in terms of an individual uh, on, you know, thinking about the way that uh, an individual journey evolves, how people experiment with different ways of um, being in transit. You know, do you really do the same thing day in, day out? Can you really do exactly today on your commute what you did uh, and how you experienced yesterday's commute? Um, and yes, the, the chapter on skills tries to draw out um, in, a, in a kind of more extensive way the implications of that concern. Um, but I think we can also um, draw out those um, those combinations of uh, or that theorization of repetition and difference, uh, you know, ac- across different sort of magnitudes of of uh, of, uh, of assemblage again to use that word. And I think um, you know the, the chapter that you mentioned, the chapter six, the final chapter of the book, tries to think about um, that question through um, through the lens of big infrastructure projects, uh, or maybe more precisely, large infrastructure projects that don't materialize or don't materialize uh, soon enough. And so it tries to think about, you know, uh, the implications of thinking about the repetition of promises that get made repeatedly, for example, um, but then infrastructure doesn't happen. You know, what is the what what's what are the kind of collective apprehensions of those repetitions? What sort of collective feelings? What sorts of what sorts of embodiments? What sort of public do failed promises, repeatedly failed promises, uh, induce over time? And so this is a chapter that really um, that really tries to understand how even when nothing is happening um, from the point of view of um, Soil being un- unturned of, of concrete beams to support, um, you know, new new railways. Even if none of that is actually happening, other things are happening. And in this case, um, you know, edge cities and these kind of outer populations uh, of Northwest Sydney that the chapter focuses on, um, we really get the sense of a a kind of collective a, a public that is overbrimming with frustration at the lack of investment and lack of action uh, in, in infrastructure construction. And of course, that is uh, that collective feeling, that collective um, uh, incapacity, uh, uh, that collective depletion in this case is experienced as a result of repetition again, 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 you know, having to endure uh, an hour and a half journey into the CBD, into the city centre, um, because of that lack of infrastructure action. So, um, so, so yes, this this kind of torsion of enablement and constraint, this uh, in terms of how uh, the repetition, <laughs> uh, how repetition occurs, uh, can be taken uh, across uh, across many different um, forms. Yeah, I think I think it's very appropriate that you've uh, uh, pointed us towards the sixth and final. Uh, chapter. There's an epilogue, um, but the the last full chapter is um, entitled "Stranded Expectations Still Waiting for Infrastructures." Um, it's the last chapter that I ultimately wanted to explore in in depth. Probably the last that we will have the opportunity to do. But I think it taps into you know a number of themes, a number of concerns that have, I mean, that are manifestly there and that, and that have been with us kind of sub, sub rosa throughout the conversation around time, temporality, time more broadly. Um, This is directly at issue in uh, chapters 
3 and 6, but in a couple different ways. Chapter 3 is titled Squeezed Transitions, Traveling Times Lost and Found. Um, and so there's this kind of pivot from that to this question of waiting. Um, it, I mean, in, in a sense, time, temporality is 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 inherent to the to the phenomenon that we are um, that we're looking at. There's no motion, I suppose, without a concept of uh, uh, time, uh, flow, uh, emergence, repetition. These all entail concepts of of time. Uh, hmm. But um, uh, and, and of course, this is central to uh, sort of De- Deleuzian uh, inheritance more broadly in the use that he makes of Bergson, for example, time as hmm. lived, time as sort of bodily endured. Um, I suppose the question is, why end on that note conceptually? Why is chapter six uh, the the last? Uh, why end with waiting? What transpires in that chapter? What doesn't transpire in that chapter? And uh, what uh, sort of what, what's the conceptual uh, move that you've made here? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. So my the the underpinning of thinking about time in this chapter is absolutely uh, inherited from from this kind of Bergsonian notion that if we treat time as I suppose a container for for things, a measurable container, um, you know, for activities uh, or whatever, um, that only produces one understanding of time that is that is actually quite restrictive. And so he encourages us to think about time as lived, time as duration, which is much a much more kind of qualitative aspect. To, um, to thinking about, um, thinking about, uh, the, certainly the embodied effects of time. And so as I, as I, as I intimated a moment ago, uh, this chapter starts off, uh, and the first part of the chapter is all about, um, uh, is all about this part of the city that, that is, that is, is essentially been left behind by infrastructure investment. Uh, by by investment in transport, um, this is a part of the city in Northwest Sydney that uh, various media uh, articles that I analysed um, really comes through as being uh, being kind of a stranded population. This is they're, they're not only wait people in that part of Sydney are not only waiting day in day out uh, uh, to actually arrive at their at their at their at their place of work. Um, so again, that, 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 that sense of enduring long travel, sense of enduring, uh, underbaked infrastructure. But this also, this kind of double sense of waiting as waiting for something to happen, waiting for infrastructure, um, waiting for a new infrastructure to be built that's been promised for many, many years by the state government. Um, but, but hasn't happened. Although I have to say, I think it's actually, um, uh, I think it's this week or last week that this this infrastructure that I discussed in this chapter actually has finally opened. So there's a there's a good news bit of story, uh, it's a, a bit of good news there. Mm. Um, but where I pivot from from this kind of this this sort of this condition this this condition of waiting in the first part of the chapter, I then move forward to think about how um how those how how that sense of waiting is intervened on how that sense of waiting is to a certain extent managed for example by uh the state government so one of the things that i found really intriguing in uh in this part of the city is that um uh is that the state government had invested a fair bit of money in an information center on this infrastructure that you know at the time still you know, still hadn't been built. A lot of people that I talked to there, you know, were really um, 
uh, will experience disbelief. You know, they said, you know, this won't happen. This won't get built. And so I was really interested that, that, that there was this, you know, information center that, uh, you know, that I, that I spend a bit of time in. I talk to people who ran it. Um, and it was really interesting that, um, to learn about how these people saw it as their task to, uh, to kind of work on people's beliefs, essentially, to try and uh, intervene uh, in people's um, in, in people's kind of sense of, uh, of of whether this infrastructure was going to happen. So, again, this was a really performative space of videos of CGI of um, of uh, of essentially kind of anticipatory promises about what was going to happen. You know, and, and this obviously. Um, uh, is is certainly indebted to others in geography, um, Peter Eddy, Ben Anderson, who have written on, uh, you know, how certain futures are are kind of brought into being in the present through all kinds of interesting and intriguing performative uh, techniques. So, so that's the sort of um, the hinge of of this chapter. But I finish the chapter um, really, uh, and, and and I suppose. To come back to your question of why why I why this chapter is the is the kind of finishing point for the book, the final um, the final third of the chapter, uh, we we join a series of I suppose you know what we might want to call grassroots movements in the city, who are attempting to um, change much much more incremental dimensions of the infrastructure um, that are taking place in the city. So rather than kind of big grandstanding projects um, the, the, of the sort that politicians like to cut ribbons on and, and show that they've done something uh, to try and curry favour with an electorate, uh, it, it zooms in on these groups, these community groups that are actively working to um, actively working to, to kind of just take the next step. And it might be something really, really small, like advocating for uh, step-free access at one particular station, for example. So things that, you know, don't have the necessarily the political glitz of the big infrastructural campaigns, but really are a case of, um, you know, okay, these, these big infrastructure projects, they take years to develop. And of course they do. And that's one of the, uh, again, to come back to this you know, question of time, that's one of the, the kind of intriguing effects uh, of, uh, of, 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 of infrastructure. You know, this stuff does take a lot of time to build. Um, but there is always wiggle room. And so, you know, the, as I, I suppose if there was an ethos that characterized the book, um, you know, no matter how constrained a situation might feel or might be, there is always there is always the potential for something to be different, however small, however minimal. There's always a way of taking the next step, you know, if we're faithful to this idea of micropolitics. And so finishing this chapter with, um, for example, the collective called the Sydney Alliance, uh, and, um, amongst a number of others. For me, they, this, this alliance actually embodies the spirit of the micropolitics and the, the taking the next step that, that, that the book itself as a whole, um, attempts to get excited about. You know, it's this idea that, you know, yes, we actually don't know where things are going to go, but if we feel crippled, if we feel completely impotent, um, then, you know, that's not going to do anyone any favours. You know, it's about appreciating that there is always uh, there is always an edge of opportunity. And it's about experimenting with, um, 
it's it's about experimenting with uh with that edge of opportunity and seeing where it goes you know it might not go anywhere but it might go somewhere and so that's that's really the point that that chapter kind of ends on and and for me i think is a really um a really appropriate way of tying together the key messages of the book within the context of thinking about um, future infrastructure and infrastructure projects. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, that uh, the, the the question of agency, different forms, different registers or scales of agency. I mean, the the, the book works across um, across what might be described as 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 scales in in interesting ways, and the concept of waiting as well. I mean, quite literally, to commute is to wait in a vehicle for for a duration of time. You sort of um, you uh, the, this larger sort of urban metropolitan regional story that you're telling about uh, the initiation or non-initiation of infrastructural projects as yet another sort of scale or register or form of waiting. I think it, 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 it resonates in, in, in curious ways. Um, well, well, thanks. We've been, we've been talking for a while here, in fact. Um, and, um, we've, you know, you know, we've delved into quite a number of the chapters. Um, the, the book we've been discussing is Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities. Um, the book covers that, but it covers quite a bit more as well at sort of a conceptual level. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add regarding the book? Anything we haven't touched on? I think that's been a, that's been a really nice summary, I think, of uh, uh, of the key kind of um, messages of the book. And I, I think it's a really nice flavor of a uh, uh, fair flavor of, of where it goes. Absolutely. Well, terrific. Um well, David, perhaps you could um, tell us a bit about what you've been working on uh, more recently. The book came out a year ago or so. Um, do you have a, a next project of this size that's occupying you? I do. Um, and and I, I suppose um, my new project, which is uh, really kind of grow out, grew out, sorry, of of my interest in commuting and of, uh, you know, of all the things we've talked about here, it looks at, it looks at some of the more recent developments that are going on in this zone of urban transit. And specifically, it looks at, um, the, the kind of, you know, near ubiquitous rise of the gig economy in, uh, in these spaces of transit. So the rise of rideshare services, for example, of Uber, of Ola, uh, and how, uh, how, how these new services are, I suppose, kind of transforming the landscape of, you know, you know, if we want to use tr- quite traditional terms, production, consumption, and governance uh, in the city. And so, um, I, it's it's a study that is very much ethnographic. It's doing a lot of in-depth interviews with those three different groups of people that I that I intimated, and it's really trying to build up again a more kind of complex picture of. Uh, of our transit futures. You know, so much is being said at the moment by um, people in the kind of transit space about the future of urban mobility, uh, you know, what, uh, and, and how things like rideshare and, for example, driverless vehicles are going to come together to produce this kind of utopian future. And I think there are a lot of real problems with these boosterist narratives of, uh, of, of kind of how emerging technologies are going to be kind of saving, uh, saving us in all kinds of ways. But, you know, very often these boosterist accounts are, are kind of, uh, are, are solutions to fairly undetermined and, and, and unspecified problems. And so, 
it's this uh, this kind of complex terrain of, of labor and technology that is that is the space that I'm moving into at the moment. So certainly taking a lot of the concerns from transit life and from the projects on commuting to think more about how our dispositions uh, and habits and tendencies in the city are being reshaped in all kinds of ways by the rise of these um, uh, these new uh, these new platform technologies. Well, that sounds terrific. Very very timely, and I think very. Uh, uh, clearly linked to what you've gotten up to in this book that has been uh, occupying us for the last hour. Um, once again, we've been speaking with David Bissell. The book is called Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities, published just last year, 2018, with the MIT Press. Um, this is and has been New Books in Geography. My name is Peter Ekman, host on this channel one of the various channels that make up the New Books Network. Um, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much, Peter. It's been a real pleasure.